Hello, welcome to the UCL News Podcast. I'm Claire. And I'm George. As usual this week, we've been searching high and low, near and far, to bring you the choicest morsels of news from around UCL. Indeed, and this week we'll be showcasing the opening of an exciting new exhibition space at UCL called The Octagon, which is at the junction of the North and South Cloisters. The space has just undergone a radical transformation with new cases, animations and interactive screens to display items from UCL's collection that have never been displayed before. Yep, and we also caught up with geography lecturer Jason Dittmer, who has got a new book out about nationalist superheroes. George caught up with him earlier to discuss why a geographer is so interested in comic superheroes anyway, and what they tell us about geopolitics. Yep, Jason is great, so do catch that later on. We've also got a very special guest with us in the podcast cave this week, Sue Black from UCL Computer Science. Hi, Sue. Hi, Hello. Hello. Um, for listeners who don't know Sue, she campaigned from 2008 to 2011 to save Bletchley Park and was instrumental in the campaign to secure the Turing Papers for the nation. Um, she's recently written a book about the campaign and she's also giving a lunch hour lecture this week. So, Sue, tell us more about the book. Well, um, I've kind of wanted to write a book for a while about Bletchley Park and uh, about all the campaigns that have gone on over the last few years because um, Bletchley Park's such an important place. Um, for me, it's like the most important place in the country, maybe the world, because it kind of brings together the birthplace of computer science along with all that history from the Second World War and the code breakers working there and uh, the fact that the work they did there potentially shortened the war by two years and... 11 million people a year were dying. So it's yeah. like, where else could you say, you know, 22 million lives were saved by and was the birthplace of computing. So. Yeah, it is pretty special. I mean, I know you did, it was kind of crumbling when you first went there and you've kind of mounted a campaign mainly on, on Twitter. Can you kind of talk a bit about, you know, how you use Twitter and why you think that was an important part? Sure, well, so so when I, I first got interested, um, I uh, was head of department at the time and uh, head of a computer science department and um, I found out that uh, Bletchley Park needed funding basically um, and yeah some of the buildings were looking a bit worse for wear um, in particular Hut 6 which is like kind of an iconic uh, code breaking hut where all these amazing things happened and um, I first of all contacted all the other heads and professors of computer science in the country saying you know I think this is important we should do something about it and they all came on board basically and um, we wrote a letter to the Times in 2008 um, and I contacted all the journalists that I knew including Rory Keflin Jones which was great because he thought it was a good story. Yeah it's very influential as well. Yeah absolutely so then we're on the Today programme and went on BBC News Um, and one of the things with traditional media is that um, you get a big spike of interest but then of course it you know you go a spike up but then it goes back down again so social media and twitter were absolutely fundamental in in kind of keeping the campaign going um because they're so good for creating community and finding people that have got Mm, a common interest you're a bit of a twitter celebrity as well these days aren't you there's lots of people with lots more followers than me not sure not maybe not as much influence um we all saw the rankings didn't yeah. we yeah <laughs> um <laughs> which rankings <laughs> oh there's what was there one in the independent was oh, it well, from last year yeah. oh yeah yeah, so, yeah that was very go. exciting um so you're also involved in the campaign for equality for women in technology working in technology 
what kind of activities do you do around that and why why is it why did you get it started well i set i set up a group uh, called bcs women for women in computing in 2001 which is still going and that was all about kind of supporting women and kind of showcasing women's achievements and and just trying to get more women and girls interested in computer science as a career um, and so, I mean, it's been great actually over the last few years to see lots of other groups starting up and, and lots of other things happening in computing um, and women kind of being seen now as uh, kind of essential for the diversity in business case, whereas a few years ago yeah. it didn't really feel like that at all. So there's definitely progress being made. Great. Thanks so much for joining us, Sue. Um, yeah, do get hold of that book if you can. When is it being published? Um, so it will come out next year. Next so year. I haven't actually started writing it yet, <laughs> but it is fully cra- uh, crowdfunded. Yeah. So it's the fastest crowdfunded book ever. Oh, really? Wow. And uh, it's on unbound.co.uk and called yeah. Saving Bletchley Park. Okay, well, do look out for that. And Sue's also doing a lunch hour lecture on Thursday, which will be live streamed and you can see it on the YouTube channel afterwards. So check that out. Great stuff. Um, so now for the rest of the news from around UCL. Uh, first off, uh, UCL and Raindance Film are collaborating on a film competition called London for Free, which was launched last week. Yep, London is often considered to be an expensive place to live and study, but there are many activities and things to do that won't break the bank, and there are also some things you just can't put a price on. Um, the competition organisers want you to use London as the backdrop for a two-minute film for example, maybe visiting an art gallery, a park or, you know, Big Ben or London Bridge or something. Um, Anyone can enter, uh, not just UCL staff and students. Yeah, and winners will receive £300 worth of vouchers for camera equipment, as well as having their work featured on UCL Communications channels. So go out and get recording. Yep, do get involved. We've got lots of flip cameras here in the office if you need to borrow one, and all the information about how to submit your entry is at www.ucl.ac.uk ac.uk forward slash london hyphen for hyphen free and last but not least there's been some interesting new research from ucl political science this week about the link between happiness and wealth yep new research has shown that happy teenagers are likely to earn more money as adults dr jan emmanuel deneve and professor andrew oswald who's from the university of warwick analyzed data from 15,000 adolescents and young adults in the USA, finding that those who report higher positive effect, which is basically just a technical measure of happiness, or higher life satisfaction grow up to earn significantly higher levels of income later in life. Their study found that happy individuals' greater wealth is due in part to the fact that happy people are more likely to get a a degree, find work and get promoted more quickly than their gloomier counterparts. So what do you think? Were you a happy teenager, George? No, I was pretty miserable, I think. No, see? No, I was miserable. (laughs) I was just saying, I don't know any happy teenagers. I'm happy now. That's a surprise we're not all kind of, you know, impoverished. It all turns out okay in the end. (laughs) Okay, so that's all the news for this show, but stay tuned to hear all about UCL's newly opened Octagon and Flaxman galleries. I'm Sally MacDonald, I'm Director of Museums and Public Engagement at UCL. When the original architect, William Wilkins, designed this building, he designed it with an aperture in the ceiling of this gallery so that visitors could see up into the iconic dome, 
but also so that light would filter down from above. And that was really important in a time before artificial lighting. In 1847, the family of the famous neoclassical artist John Flaxman donated a large body of work from the artist studio to UCL. My name is Nina Perlman and I manage UCL Art Museum. At the same time, UCL's second architect, Thomas Donaldson, was busy making modifications and additions to William Wilkins' original plan. When the Flaxman Gallery was being created, that oculus was covered over so that the statue of St Michael could have a, a fitting place in the centre of the Flaxman Gallery. What this current design does is unites the best parts of both of those earlier schemes so that St Michael, the statue of St Michael, now stands on a glass plinth. It's very much the centre of the architectural composition of the Flaxman Gallery but you've got that visibility again between the ground floor and the first floor and that sense of spaciousness and light. And you've got this fabulous new exhibition space. So we've really united the best of UCL's heritage with really contemporary 21st century thought. What we wanted was a space where we could showcase some of UCL's most wonderful collections but also where we could highlight some of our cutting-edge research. So it's kind of a dialogue between the past and the present and a place where visitors really can get a feel for what UCL's thought about in the past and what we're thinking today. In 1922, the statue of St Michael overcoming Satan entered what we might call a, a nomadic phase. Photographs from 1937, we see the sculpture out on the portico. Leading up to its departure from the university in 1972, when it went on long-term loan, along with other models, to the V&A. In 1941, the university and this particular site experienced severe damage from bombing during the war. There was damage to the dome and damage to the gallery. The absence of St. Michael from the gallery, in fact, is what saved the sculpture. St. Michael finally returned in 1994. We wanted to do this because previously this space was very much a thoroughfare. It was just a space that people walked through on their way to somewhere else. And now I think it's somewhere that's a real destination. It's somewhere that people can stop and look and be inspired. And we really feel it's going to be a, a space that's going to change and reflect UCL's current concerns. A, a space which, which students are going to find really stimulating as well, um, but also that visitors to UCL for the first time are going to get a real feel for what UCL's about. The galleries are right at the heart of UCL and hard to miss. Do go and have a look. 
Yep, and to round off this week's podcast, I went to speak to Jason Dittmer from New South Geography about nationalist superheroes like Captain America and how the narratives, metaphors and geopolitics have changed since its introduction 70 years ago. My name is Jason Dittmer, and I'm a political geographer here at UCL in the Department of Geography. So your book, Captain America and the Nationalist Superhero, Metaphors, Narratives and Geopolitics, comes out this month. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about the book, please? It's a, it's a book that in a way traces two kinds of geographies. One is the way in which these heroes help to reinforce the idea of the nation state as a, the fundamental type of geography that we should think of ourselves uh, through the lens of our nationhood and as citizens of particular kinds of states. And then secondly, uh, it traces the, the spread of that genre, the national superhero genre, uh, from the United States and into Canada and the United Kingdom and, and talks about how the hero, the national superhero, had to be reimagined for each of those contexts. So who is Captain America? Could you tell me a bit more about his character and, and why he's such a kind of clear symbol for, for America? Well... I mean, in a way, he's a he's an overdetermined symbol, isn't he? I mean, he's you know, it's hard to not associate him with America. Uh, he uh, is originally this guy, Steve Rogers. Uh, I should say the comic was created in 1940, so before the U.S. got into World War II, but after the war had begun here in Europe. And uh, so there's this guy, Steve Rogers, and he wants to join, but he's too puny. He's categorized as 4F by the U.S. military, uh, and so he volunteers for this experiment where he's given the super soldier serum. Uh, and he's transformed into this sort of Olympian uh, athlete figure. And he carries a shield, which I think is significant. You know, most heroes or villains have weapons, but he has a defensive mechanism. So he's sort of fundamentally a symbol of the effort to defend the United States from outside aggression. So as you, as you mentioned, um, it started in 1940, which means it's been running for a long time and it's sold millions and millions of copies. How have the depictions of, of Captain America and the, the narratives surrounding him kind of shifted over the past 70 years, especially post 9-11? Well, it's a, it's, a, it's a big question. I mean, in a way, that's a, a good chunk of the book. <laughs> I, I can summarize it maybe by actually not talking about Captain America, but by talking about his, his sort of fundamental nemesis, who's this character called the Red Skull. And the Red Skull uh, starts off in, in actually the very first issue of Captain America comics from, from 1940. Uh, as a Nazi saboteur. And so he's, he's a Nazi all the way through World War II. When the comic is relaunched in the 1950s during the Korean War, he is conveniently a communist. You know, actually, his name sort of lends itself to, uh, to being depicted as a communist villain. Uh, and then in the 1960s, when Captain America comes back, he returns as a Nazi. Uh, which is yeah, sort of paradoxical, or, or at least unexpected. You wouldn't really think of it. But because in the 1960s, comics were read largely by sort of hippies and counterculture-oriented youth, you know, you couldn't really sort of rail against communism during the Vietnam War the same way that you could uh, perhaps during the Korean War. So uh, he comes back as a Nazi. Uh, and later, he becomes the sort of symbol of everything else that's un-American. And he becomes, uh, for instance, about uh, he tries to uh, intensify the levels of racism in the United States. Uh, he becomes a crony capitalist who's uh, he's actually written as being behind the 2008 economic collapse. Uh, so, you know, he's he's sort of always what is seen as un-American or as the, the, the other to the United States. Um, and, and his sort of shifting around allows Captain America to always seem like the same guy, even though his battles are always fundamentally about something new and something different. So how does Captain America 
differ to other su- superheroes, be they Marvel or other ones. Is there, is there anything which makes him stand out in particular, in your opinion? I think what, what makes him interesting is, I mean, be, beyond my sort of obvious interest in the fact that he's labeled as, as this American superhero, I think he's, he's definitely marked out as being the moral center of the Marvel Comics universe. You know, if there's one thing that makes him distinctive, it's not that he's the strongest, it's not that he's the fastest or the toughest or whatever, um, but he's the most moral, which I think says a lot about uh, the conception of American foreign policy in the United <laughs> States, that it's always fundamentally correct. Uh, and if anything has gone wrong, it's it's because of something technical rather than something uh, fundamental. Um, kind of much your academic work at UCL kind of looks at geopolitics and some of the geography of media. Why did you decide to look at comic books specifically and, and specifically nationalist superheroes such as Captain America to look at national identity? Well, I mean, th- there's two ways to answer that, I suppose. One is the sort of autobiographical thing, mm. which was that when I was a teenager, I read Captain America comics and enjoyed them very much. Uh, And so when I was doing my PhD and studying geopolitics and uh, national identity, you know, all of a sudden I thought back to this and I I could recall specific stories and the way that sort of Captain America was portrayed within them. And I thought, oh my God, you know, this is, even without going back to look at them, I thought, oh, this is fascinating. I know there's good stuff here. Uh, and I thought it would be about a year's project, and instead it's been about 10 years <laughs> worth of work. Then secondarily, I think comics are a really interesting medium. As a geographer, you're always interested in space, you know, in, in the spatial dimensions to things. And comics are a really interesting medium because essentially they t- you know, they're nothing but space. It's an image, uh, and things are portrayed in this two-dimensional space. And yet we produce time out of that juxtaposition of spaces. You know? So it converts space into time in a, in a way mm. that is sort of perpetually interesting to me. Many thanks to Jason for coming to chat to me and be sure to check out both Jason's and Sue's books. And that's all we have for this show, but we'll be back in a fortnight with more news and features from UCL. But if you want to get in touch in the meantime, you can tweet us at UCL News or email us at mynews at ucl.ac.uk. Bye.